Hello, and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek. And today I'm speaking with Harry Collins about his new book, Gravity's Kiss, The Detection of Gravitational Waves. Harry Collins is Distinguished Research Professor of Sociology and Director of the Center for the Study of Knowledge, Expertise, and Science at Cardiff University. He's the author of Changing Order, Gravity's Shadow, Gravity's Ghost, Gravity's Ghost and Big Dog, and other books. He's the co-author of Bad Call, Technology's Attack on Referees and Umpires and How to Fix It, which is also published by the MIT Press. Harry Collins, thanks for being on the MIT Press podcast today. Sure. It's a pleasure to be be here with you. Is it fair to say that this book, Gravity's Kiss, The Detection of Gravitational Waves, is kind of the final chapter of a 43-year quest to document the scientific community's search for gravitational waves? Yeah, it's pretty close to the final chapter. I might write another couple of papers uh, it's time for me to bow out, but at the same time, I thought that the study, the real-time study of gravitational wave detection should carry on. So I've uh, managed to persuade a guy called Dan Kenefick, who's already written a book about the theory of gravitational waves, to take over from me. And I guess we'll probably write a couple of papers together before I finally fade into the shadows. Uh, Dan uh, did his PhD at Caltech uh, uh, in physics, and he also worked with me for a couple of years at Cardiff because he was interested in the history and sociology of science. So he's a very suitable person. Now, we're going to be getting into this in the interview, but for those people who have not read your books before, we need probably need to take a step back. You are not a trained physicist, nor uh, you're not part of the... Although you are within this community, you aren't actually a trained physicist in, in this sense. You're an anthropologist, correct? I'm not an anthropologist. I'm a sociologist. Uh, but uh, the sort of work I do is very like the sort of thing that anthropologists and ethnographers do. I call it participant comprehension. That is to say, I get into the field and try and become as like one of the people I'm studying as possible. So as like a gravitational wave physicist as possible. But no, uh, my uh, formal education in physics stopped at the end of high school. So I have no degrees in physics uh, and uh no, I'm not a physicist. And I don't do well. You know, occasionally I try to do bits of physics, but it's as much to try and irritate the physicists as as, as much as anything else. And we sometimes have a laugh about it, you know. OK, just very, very rarely I get something right. but not very often. Now, for those of us who don't follow science news that closely, could you explain both the significance of this discovery of the detection of gravitational waves and give us a sense of how much capital both in human and technological terms was needed to get to the point where this book starts? You can see how significant it was, but if we talk about the human cap and, uh, and uh, financial capital first, I mean, gravitational waves were an idea of Einstein's way back in, I think, 1915 or 1916 with his general theory of relativity. Uh, there was nothing but theory for the next 50 years or so. Uh, and uh, there were various conferences to meet and talk about, argue about whether gravitational waves really did exist and whether if they did exist, they could be in principle detectable. Einstein changed his mind a couple of times about whether they really did exist, uh, sent a paper off to a physics journal and said they didn't. Uh, and then it turned out he was wrong about that. And they do. And then there's a big question about whether they were even detectable in principle. But all these arguments stopped in the early 1960s when a man called Joseph Weber, known as Joe Weber, uh, he was died in the year 2000. 
decided that he was going to go ahead and build a gravitational wave detector in spite of what everybody said about the fact that they may not exist. And he did. And by the late 1960s, he was claiming that he was seeing gravitational waves. He was detecting gravitational waves with his $100,000 lab-based detector. Um, most people were pretty sceptical about this. and But what he did was to get the result of this claim was that other people started building detectors. And that's where I came in because I was doing my PhD at the time and I wanted to study some scientific controversies. And this was one of the ones that I picked on to look at the controversy between Joe Weber and other people who were building gravitational waves and said he couldn't possibly be seeing what he said he was seeing or who had, were beginning to build bits of apparatus, which mostly weren't finding what he said he was finding. So I followed that argument for a long time. I interviewed everybody in the game in 1972 and then I interviewed everybody in the game again in 1975 and I carried on. I wrote all this up by about 1978 and I thought that was probably it. Um, and by that time, by say 1975, hardly anybody believed Joe Weber any longer. So, but uh, a man called Ray Weiss and various others were trying to build and trying to proselytize another way of doing the detection of gravitational waves, which involved huge interferometers. Uh, now, I should say that there were other people building a sort of second generation of Weber type bars, but the, the Weber had built a, a resonant bar. A bar weighing a couple of tons made out of aluminium alloy, which he suspended in a vacuum. And his way of detecting gravitational waves was, was to watch for this bar ringing and see if it rang in coincidence with another bar a couple of thousand, a thousand miles away or so. Well, other people then built more resonant bars, but they thought, well, we'll make them a lot more sensitive by cooling them down to near absolute zero. And so much more money started to be spent on gravitational wave detectors. Let's say we went up from $100,000 to $500,000, something of that sort to build a pair of gravitational wave detectors. But they didn't seem to see anything either, or at least some of them said they were. They did see things. About six claims were made over the history of the, of the cryogenic resonant bars. But Eventually, all those wound up in the wastebasket. Some of them got a lot of publicity first, but and they couldn't convince the scientific community that they'd seen anything. And eventually, about the beginning of the 1990s, end of the 80s, uh, the big interferometers were funded. Now, this was much bigger money altogether. Now you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars instead of a few hundred thousand. And they started to be built. And I got back into the field and watched the building of the big interferometers and stuck with it in the hope that eventually they might discover gravity waves before I died or became gaga. And miraculously, it happened. This book is not only a diary of what was being discussed in the discovery process, and it really starts from September 2015 when the first inklings that something big may have been going on within the physics community. But it's not such as it's a diary, but it's also kind of a personal reflection on you, on your part on how scientific discoveries are to a surprising extent for those of us really outside the community social agreements. Uh, can you give us an example of part of the process that to an outsider maybe thought of as really only needing an observation of an event when in actuality there's a social consensus that needs to be formed in order for somebody to say this occurred? 
Sure. Let me say, add also that before I've written the book you're referring to, I'd written three other books which deal with the, uh, on gravitational waves, which deal with the same kind of problem. And I'd written books, the general books about this kind of problem, starting in my first book on the general problem was 1982. And then there was another one in 1985. So I've got a long history of saying how science, scientific discovery is a social process. But this is some of the examples of, of, of the social aspect of this discovery, which, as you say, from the outside, it looks like, oh, we've seen it. We've seen a gravity wave. Hooray. But in fact, when the group first uh, inklings of an event was seen on September the 15th, 2015, I don't think anybody believed it. I certainly didn't believe it. There are false alarms happening all the time. The apparatuses are immensely sensitive. They're always wiggling and jiggling about. And it takes a hell of a lot of work to decide whether some vestigial excursion just above the normal level of noise is really a meaningful signal. So people didn't believe it, though it surprisingly quickly in two or three days, people did start to believe it. I mean, I started to write the book just a couple of days after the first intimation of the signal, because something very unusual was happening. Usually what happens when you get these signals is that within a short time people work out that they're false alarms and reasons why you shouldn't take any notice of them but in this case as the emails went round and round about the circuits the strength of belief gradually began to grow instead of rapidly diminish and after and to see it growing for three days was so unusual that i thought well maybe this is real and i think that's what other people thought as well and now we've got to prove it but proving it is a long way from having a feeling that it's real. I mean, one thing you've got to do if you want a scientific community of sceptical scientific community to believe you is you've got to show the likelihood of this being due to chance, due to uh, a chance coincidence among the noise, which is there all the time, is you've got to get a statistical significance for this of only one chance in three and a half million of this being due to noise. This is the famous five sigma standard and that took a lot of work you've got to look at the noise and analyze it and and do all kinds of things to make sure that it's you're not being fooled i mean one of the things that the physicists spent a lot of time on right from the beginning is making sure that no malicious hacker had broken into the machinery and injected a full signal to make a fool of them all and that's quite difficult to prove and eventually they did agree to their satisfaction it couldn't have happened because they worked out how complicated it would have been. And they knew that to do anything that complicated would have required the collaboration of quite a few people within the collaboration. And that became, as it were, that's sociologically, incre sociologically incredible. It's sociologically incredible that, shall we say, half a dozen people from within the collaboration would have got together to fool everybody maliciously. And so that's why that possibility fell by the wayside. So that's one. The, the, the other sociological aspect of this is there's always reasons to think that this isn't real. And at some point that some signal isn't real. And at some point you've got to stop questioning because in principle you can go on questioning forever. And one of the sociological features of science is that everybody knows when to stop questioning and they know what kind of question not to ask. 
So I can assure you, and you won't be surprised about this, that nobody ever asked, could this be the desire of a thousand physicists who are involved in this, that the desire of these physicists to see something really so strong that they're having a psychokinetic effect on this extremely delicate piece of apparatus. You won't be surprised that nobody asked that and nobody <laughs> did ask it. But if you stop to think about it, it's a sociological fact that nobody's going to ask this because they'd look totally stupid. That's a sociological fact. Another thing that nobody asked is, or nobody quite asked, but they got close to this, is, is it possible that gravitational waves don't travel at the speed of light? Because if they don't, then all the calculations that have been done are, would all be wrong. And nobody ever quite asked that one, though they got near to it. And that, again, is a sociological fact. So you can see how you need agreement, trust and agreement to get to the point when you can say you've made a discovery. It's not as though it comes and thumps you right between the eyes, like being knocked out in a boxing ring. You know, a term that shows up in this book more than once is relentless professionalism. Could you explain what you meant by that? Yeah, this is my, I'm afraid, was one of my criticisms of some of the things that the physicists did, um, because it's a good thing in a way that physicists are determined to get everything right, but sometimes it becomes a little bit crazy. Um, there's a famous example of this, not from this particular incident, but from a, a few years back in gravitational waves. Um, the physicists have a rule that uh, you must never manipulate the data too much, otherwise the statistics you're doing uh, are wrong. So you've, you've only got to make one pass with your statistical calculation. But they've got to explore different statistical ways of, of uh, doing the job. And so they have this agreement that they'll mess about with a very small proportion of the data, uh, doing as many tests, different kinds of tests and different kind of statistical analyses as they can, and then when they've decided they've really decided on the correct way to uh, analyze the data, they do what's called opening the box and they get all the rest of the data out and they analyze the data with this method that they've worked out. Now, the rule is you must never change that method once the box has been opened. So a few years back, uh, they went through this procedure. They were only setting an upper limit. So it wasn't a real signal. It was the whole argument that there was there was no signal in the data. That's what they were trying to prove. But you've still got to go through the same rigmarole. So they went through the whole rigmarole. They opened the box and they found something in the data. And then somebody realized actually this signal was caused by an airplane that had flown low over the site. And then they had an argument that went on for months and months and months about whether they were allowed to say that this was an airplane since it hadn't been part of the statistical protocol and eventually they decided that they would say it with an airplane because otherwise it seemed completely crazy but i have to tell you that at least one person resigned from the community because they said he said they were doing the statistics wrong so that's called the airplane event and we got other things that are a little bit like the airplane event as i saw it anyway and these were heated arguments over what this observation meant for the estimated rate of observations in the galaxy as you know the event that had been seen was a pair of inspiraling black holes and the question was well how many inspiraling black holes should are there in the galaxy now that we've seen this one 
And you can do a calculation about this because you can say, well, we saw it at this distance and, you know, you can work from that. But it's pretty obvious with only one sighting, the calculation that you do is going to have to be very, very, very rough. I mean, hugely rough with enormous outer limits on it. And yet there was a fierce argument about what exactly these outer limits should be. And that seemed to me what I call relentless professionalism. So the book looks at the sociological issues behind within the community about this discovery. But in the last chapter, uh, you kind of, I want to say, switch the focus from sociology within the community and taking a look at science within broader society. You mentioned your next book is going to be dealing with science and democracy, but you lay out some of the themes, or at least it seemed to me, some of the themes that we'll see in that book in this one. What did you know about, what did you notice about the process you wrote about in this book that maybe either gave you pause or relief about the relationship between science and democracy? Okay, well, see, the other book, it's called Why Democracies Need Science. It's out here in the UK, but probably just just about to come out in the US. Um, the book argues that we des- democracies desperately need science because all our institutions are eroding in the face of free market capitalism and greed. So, I mean, for instance, you can no longer trust the banks. When I was a kid, you could totally trust the banks and you can't trust the banks anymore. And we know what happened. We, we know that from the 2008 crash and so forth. And you go through institution after institution. And you cannot trust them. Whereas my experience with the gravitational wave community is that you can trust these kinds of physicists. They are committed to finding the truth much more than they're committed to finding fame or money. Because from 50 years of gravitational wave detection, if you'd been in it for fame or money, you wouldn't have been doing very well. But if you were in it for finding the truth, there was still some hope. So I think we need science of this kind to lead society, to show society how to live properly. Uh, it's, it's extremely uh, pertinent at the moment in these days of, of post-truth, of course. Uh, I didn't expect that when I was writing the book. It hadn't happened. But here it is. You know, exactly the things we're talking about have happened. And we think that science can provide a lead for how to live in a better way. Now, I think that the gravitational wave community just got something slightly wrong in the case of this discovery. I mean, it's been wonderful for me living with them for 50 years because I think they're an almost an ideal community. But I think they got too excited about keeping this discovery secret until they were ready to announce it. And this resulted in them having to tell lies, fibs and deceive journalists for quite a long time. I mean, I, I, journalists, certain journalists knew that I was involved in this business. So people, journalists were ringing me up and I had to tell them untruths. I had to deceive them and tell them things that weren't true. And I felt really uncomfortable about it. And it seemed to me that if you have to say these things that aren't true, you're no longer giving the kind of lead to society uh, that I want science to be able to give. And I believe there's a very, very simple way around it. You simply say not that we're not going to tell you anything until the date of the press conference. But uh, yes, we're working on something. But you know how easy it is things for things to go wrong it's going to take us five months to sort it out and at a certain date we'll do an unveiling and at that date we'll either tell you we've found something 
and we're confident about it or we'll tell you, no, it turned out not to be right after all. But there's no need to pretend all this time that you're not looking at anything. I can't understand why it was happening. And, and it seemed to me there were so many rumours going around that it was pointless anyway. So that's my feeling about where it went slightly wrong. Harry Collins, the author of Gravity's Kiss, The Detection of Gravitational Waves. Thanks for being on the MAT Press podcast today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press podcast. Copyright 2017, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.